Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. Oh, and I have news. On Thursday, August 15th, in Toronto at the Review Cinema at 6.45pm, I'll be presenting a screening of Jaws with friend of the show and guy who picked Jaws for the show, Paul Sun Young Lee from Kim's Convenience. It's a birthday present to ourselves. It's going to be fun. It's going to be silly. It's going to be, you know, an excuse to see Jaws in a movie theater with a bunch of people who really, really love Jaws. You should come. Tickets are available at reviewcinema.ca. That's R-E-V-U-E cinema.ca. And I have been tweeting it out constantly from the show account. So, you know, just keep an eye on Semcast on Twitter and you'll find a link. My guest this week is Kalina Bertin, a Montreal filmmaker who made a powerful personal debut with Manic a 2017 documentary about her family's genetic history of mental illness and the story of her absent father, who, it turns out, was a messianic cult leader when Kalina was a child. It's now available for rental and purchase on Vimeo, and you really ought to see it. Kalina chose Mulholland Drive, David Lynch's amorphous 2001 mystery starring Naomi Watts and Laura Elena Herring as two young women in Hollywood on the trail of a mystery that gets more complex and more disturbing the deeper they dig. Lynch chose to describe it as a contemporary film noir, but that's like calling Eraserhead a domestic drama or Blue Velvet a small-town love story. He can call his movies whatever he wants, but there's always an undertow of psychosexual panic and horror corrupting the story from within that won't be denied. You may also notice that about halfway through, Kalina starts asking me what I think about the movie, subtly turning this podcast on its host and changing the fundamental nature of the experience we've been having, which is also strangely appropriate to the film. This is someone else's movie. One film that I constantly go back to is Mulholland Drive. Um, uh, it's just a film that really haunts you. And each time that you revisit it, um, based on what you've lived since you watched it last time, you're always uh, unpacking new material and yeah. seeing it sort of through a different lens. Um, but I've realized uh, how much it's actually influenced my own filmmaking process. Um, Mulholland Drive is an investigative process, you know, very much like my film Manic was an investigative process, very personal. Sure. And I really had to reconcile, because Manic, you know, was about my family and how uh, what we were going through was so surreal, I had to reconcile um, playing with a narrative that wouldn't be too on the nose. So trying to explore um, almost like uh, dreamlike sequences. Which I realize, you know, Mulholland Drive does very much. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the, the, the main reason why I, pick, I, I chose it. And, I mean, the thing that struck me when you, when you suggested it was that, of course, you know, um, Betty's whole mission in the film is to find someone else's identity and figure out who this woman is who's arrived. And you're sort of reconstructing your family, your entire family's identity through archival material and your own history the, the the of course they connect i mean it, it's so clear to in retrospect but at the moment like in the moment when you were making manic were you thinking you know boy this could be a really uh david lynchian thing because the feeling of your film is completely different they're they're really not two movies i would line up together except that they both start with them exactly yeah um no it wasn't it was completely uh, unconscious and it's really only um, this morning yeah. that I realized that connection and and 
Uh, however, I must say that in the sound design, when I was working with the sound designers, I had sent them clips of sequences of various David Lynch films because okay. the sound treatment uh, in all of David Lynch's films is so evocative and mysterious and eerie. And um, so that was a very clear reference. But I had never, no, thought about, oh, you know, I'm going to do a Lynchian version, uh, you know, a Lynchian documentary. No. Uh, it wasn't a clear, conscious decision. But now I think I realize why, also why Mulholland Drive just stuck with me so much. Yeah, because yeah. of all the themes that it tackles, you know, um, identity. Um, but then love, and also what I was thinking about was when I first watched this film, I was dreaming of one day becoming a filmmaker. And when was that? When did you first see it? When did I first see Mulholland Drive? I was probably... I was probably uh, 18 or 19. Okay. And, you know, I was at a place where um, I, you know, grew up in a very dysfunctional family. My mom, you know, she's a psychologist, so she did have some sort of, you know, successful career. But I felt like there were so many things going against me in terms of realizing my goals. Uh, I felt somehow, like, socially a bit handicapped mm. um, and so I was wondering if I was going to able, be able to sort of overcome my fear and my social anxieties and become a filmmaker and, and do all this so I don't know when I saw Mulholland Drive and all of this concept of the sh shattered dreams you know and, and, and um, the, the, the end is so dramatic you know ends in suicide mm -hmm. um, I don't know I just really connected with that and sort of that yeah oh you know, so many people go through a process of, you know, at some point thinking and dreaming that they'll be a filmmaker, you know, or an sure, actor. Yeah, and, yeah. But not a lot of people make it. So, yeah, I think I was sort of haunted by all that, you know, or, am I going to make it and am I not going to make it? But, yeah. Yeah. And if you saw it when you were 18 or 19, I'm assuming DVD or did you see it theatrically? Because, I mean, the film, it's, it's stunning in my brain to even think about the fact that this film is what, almost 17 years old, that it was released in 2001, that it actually, uh, and I've told this story on the podcast before, I was supposed to interview Lynch for it at TIFF on 9-11. The, the press junket was set for September 11th, 2001, and was derailed by everything that happened in New York. And we we got to the Four Seasons where they were having the, the press day, and everybody in the press room, it was 8.45, I got there just in time to see the second plane hit on television, on CNN, and, and we just watched the whole festival collapse. So Mulholland Drive will always be associated with that for me. Um, and that I've still never interviewed Lynch, which just, you know, thanks Osama. Uh, but the, um, the idea of this film aging, it hasn't aged. That's, that's the thing that struck me. It, it is not the clothes may be a little bit, the suits are a bit loose, but it, it feels absolutely of the moment in a really timeless and strange way. And maybe that's the dream state, but you, I mean, you couldn't, if you saw it when you were 18 or 19, you couldn't have seen it when it opened. So how did you see it? What was your, when did you experience it? And how did you find it? I think it was through uh, a class mm. uh, that I was having, a film class that I was having in CJEP uh, in Montreal. And um, we're going to analyze the film. And so we had to watch it. Uh, my, my mother had had us go see Elephant Man. Uh, I had seen Lost Highways. Um, 
And I really, I didn't like Lost Highways when I first saw it. Okay. My appreciation for that film really came after watching Mulholland Drive, because you can see seeds oh, of much. Mulholland Drive in yeah. Lost Highways. But, um, but yeah, it was in the context of a class. And then uh, we had re- uh, read, uh, I mean, it was, it was amazing watching it, uh, especially the first time, because you're kind of, you have to surrender to this film, you know? Yes, there are some threads that you can follow in order to analyze it, and I think there is a sense of a, a strong structure, but not everything has ans- answers, you know what I mean? Sure. Which I love so much, you know, that's what real life is, you know? We don't have uh, answers to all of our questions, so you have to be in a state of, like, surrendering. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, it was really interesting to analyze it in the context of the class. Uh, we read an anal- um, analysis from a psychiatrist uh, who also was a film critic. Okay. So she used all of that, um, uh, you know, Freudian codes to sort of delve into it. Sure, and yeah. So it was kind of awesome to see somebody break it down um, and uh, bring sense to it. But I think even if you don't go to the depths of the analysis, there's still so much that you can experience just by injecting your own subconscious and your own life in the film. Mm-hmm. And um, how often do you, or did you revisit it? Is it the kind of film you return to? I've probably seen Mulholland Drive like over 10 times. Yeah, I've seen it. I've watched it a lot. Okay. Um, yeah, it's one of my go-to films um, because of its it's so multi, multi-layered. Yeah, well, let me then push my button on this one which is the uh i i still i'm one of the ones who prefers lost highway okay um, interesting. i just i think it's more cinematic ultimately it yeah. feels more of a consistent experience and and i think like this was a period in lynch's creative process where i think he was still trying to figure out how he worked best he's a very intuitive filmmaker he's always said that he just follows the image and and goes where it leads him but Mulholland Drive. I mean, it was a it was pitched as a pilot for exactly. a television series. Yeah, ABC. And when they didn't take it, he added new material, reworked some of it, and it just it still feels very much to me like a reverse engineered project in a way that Lost Highway doesn't. I think Lost Highway has a flow, even though it is you know bisected in much the same way. And I think when he realized he wasn't going to be able to use the material as television, he went back to the structure of Lost Highway and added that, and it works. It works really well, but I can never watch it without thinking, oh, well, this is probably something he figured out afterwards, and this is the thing before. The, the, the scene of the nightmare behind Winky's Diner, which is probably the single most nightmarish thing he's ever filmed, and I still can't imagine that being broadcast on television in 2000 and whenever, because it would have killed people. It's just so, it, you know, it's completely bloodless, there's nothing horrific there's no gore there's no violence it's just a thing that looms up and it's probably just a homeless person in in makeup uh but it is so unnerving and disturbing uh and it's great but it never pays off it's one of those things that's just free-floating anxiety but that's what i love is it doesn't always have to pay off you know when Mm. you go to film school you study you know narrative arcs and you can't you're never supposed to introduce a character that doesn't lead anywhere sure but David Lynch, David Lynch, you know, throws that to shreds. And uh, I mean, that scene, I've, I've, it's one of my favorite scenes of the film. You know, the way that it's shot, there's sort of this hovering, mm-hmm. anxious camera. The sound design is so strong. And, you know, most of sort of the, the, the fear that comes out of that scene is from the, the very eerie noises that, you know, resonate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what I really love also is that I feel like in David Lynch's work, there's always this tension between... Um, the kitsch, 
you know, the, the way that the actors are playing, they're not exactly on key. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You kind of feel like they're playing characters. I don't really believe in these characters 100%, but it kind of, I don't know, adds some sort of layer of being feeling disconnected. And in the context of the diner and, and being in Los Angeles, there's something that feels a bit fake about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but all of that layered on top of, of itself just creates such an original uh, setting um, and yeah, those characters, we don't see them. I mean, who we do see, we do see the homeless character at the end. So it's almost like um, he's talking about a dream, right? And the whole, you know, there's reasonable uh, evidence to believe that the whole film is a dream. Sure. Yeah. So that's still playing. It's not like it's completely out of context, you know, within the film. He's talking about a dream. He's talking about this fear that's associated with this, this character. And then that character that he's building up and this whole emotional baggage that's associated with that character comes back at the end. Sure, yeah. yeah. So it's not completely unlinked, but I feel like he can get away with um, his very unconventional storytelling devices. Yeah, the, and, and it's true that Mulholland Drive st- starts with that, with the, with the dancing sequence that makes no sense except emotionally. Yeah. Where it's just... And we forget that sequence, mm-hmm. right? You have to see it more than once to understand what that dancing sequence actually means. Exactly, and the um, and the just the use of well, it's as you're saying the use of artifice, the way that people are. Uh, I mean, it's it started in Eraserhead, I think, where people are strangely formal, or and the dialogue is a little clipped and mannered, and it sort of reached its apex for me with Blue Velvet, where it plays so beautifully into the idea that every single person you see is hiding a secret life, a completely different personality that only comes out when they release it, when they choose to bring it out, or when they are overcome and it has to come out. Uh, and then that, of course, is what Mulholland Drive is about. So whether or not it was always going to be the ending of the television series, which I assume it wasn't because he never thinks in endings, but it's perfectly setting up where this is going. And when ultimately he's he's backed against a wall and has to come up with an ending so he can make a movie out of this abandoned television pilot, suddenly he reaches to the thing that he's always reached to. It's the theme of Lost Highway. It's the theme of Blue Velvet. Um, even The Elephant Man ultimately is about a man who wishes he could be a different person in so many ways. And here we are, and it works, but it's so... It feels so risky when it happens in Mulholland Drive because what he's doing is upending the past, what, 9,500 minutes of film to just completely say, oh, you know what? This is what's really going on, and you're never going to see half of these people again. And it's about a miserable, angry, desperate person breathing her last, essentially, and, and imagining a better world for herself. Spoilers. But uh, but it's, it's such a... I, I couldn't tell, the first time I saw it, I couldn't tell if he was simply saying, eh, you know... So, this move, this material's never coming back. I'm just going to throw it all away. Let me ask something. To, yeah. uh, let me ask you a question. When you first saw it, did you knew the context that he had done this pilot for ABC and then he wanted to rescue sort of that material and made a film? Did you have that context? I don't think I did. I think they screened it for us. It was after Ken. I believe it played Ken. It didn't, didn't premiere in Toronto. Uh, they screened it for us early enough in the festival that I hadn't heard anything about it when I saw it. And then... Between that and when I was supposed to do the interviews, that's when all the information started to come in. So, so I think I, I could feel that it was, I think, just because it followed Lost Highway so closely, it felt like the same bait and switch, which was weird. Because Lost Highway does a really interesting pivot 
And in Mulholland Drive, it simply the film simply stops and becomes a new film, which is fine. I mean, it works, but it was really jarring at the time. I remember thinking, oh, this is how you're solving this. That's weird. And then I found out that it was a retcon, essentially, that he retro, uh, retroactively reworked the material into this, and that makes much more sense to me. But it's made it made me like Lost Highway more, um, simply by finding out more about Mulholland Drive. Not that I'm arguing that one is better or worse, it's just a personal preference. But the, you know, as, as amazing and disturbing as the Winkies scene is, there's the scene in Lost Highway where um, Bill Pullman walks into a wall and simply disappears and nothing happens. There's no release. There's no, there's no explosion, which I find so much more unnerving because I was sitting in a tiny screening room with that movie locked around me and just unable to breathe for another half hour until I realized that I could relax. And then, of course, it just does the other things it does. Mulholland Drive, for all of its tension, it's about tension and release because I think it's still on some level following an act structure that would have worked for TV Mm -hmm. in the first hour and a half. Uh, It's episodic in a way that Lost Highway isn't. And then the pivot into pure cinema is much more... I think people responded to it at the time because it was so much more unexpected that it completely changes modes and tones as well as narrative. But it's a huge ask for people, and I'm stunned that it paid off for him. I mean, really, that we're still talking about it 20 years later. It's, it's kind of amazing. When it came out at Cannes, though the critics were quite harsh, weren't they? Mm-hmm. I think people thought that... Well, I don't think... I don't think the European critics got the specific commentary on American actors. And because Naomi Watts is Australian, that made it even more confusing. Because she's amazing. She really, it's just one of those things where I was stunned to find out years and years later that she wasn't even nominated for it. Lynch was nominated for Best Director, but she didn't get an actor nomination, which is just stunning. It is the performance of that year. What's wild also is that um, in an interview that I had seen with her, she was ready to abandon acting because it really was not going well for her. Um, But then finally she got the call um, and to do an interview for this film and then she got it. But, you know, and so sort of her own personal, and I sometimes wonder if, you know, David Lynch sort of fished that out when he was talking with her. Uh, She was the perfect casting and almost had sort of the personal baggage to really represent this Betty character. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that was on his mind. I mean, he would... She's, she's, I think, open enough in in her process that she would have mentioned it or he would have found out that she hadn't done very much. And yeah, Betty's... She's a little too old for the role. She's a little... Betty, I mean, not Naomi Watts. Um, She's a little too old for the this is the girl stuff. She's a woman, not a girl. She's clearly been trying for a while and yeah he, he finds that but then my god that scene that audition scene where Watts just you know you think you're watching someone do a decent job and then you see what else she's capable of and I, I know the whole you know the, the, the whole wisdom on watching an actor play multiple characters within a given film and this is even this isn't even before we see what Betty really is in the final movement of the movie um, is simply that of course actors can play different characters but Watching it happen on a dime is such an electric thing. Uh, you know, you see it on Orphan Black all the time when, when uh, Tatiana Maslany is acting against herself, and you just, you're instantly confronted with range. But in the audition scene, you get to watch her entire body change shape. She, like, her shoulders shift somehow. She physically t- contorts herself in a different way to play a temptress all of a sudden, and then goes back to being shy and retiring. And you just think, how. 
I why have I only seen her in Tank Girl? Like, where has she been? This is an incredible um, presence, screen presence, and she can turn it on and off, and it's just it's so. I mean, it was breathtaking. And then for the film to just roll forward and then not be about her acting and be about something else, not be about Betty becoming a star or getting the show or getting the role and investigating a mystery instead. It's it's great, but I think that's the problem for a lot of people is that, well, why aren't we watching this amazing thing again? Because that was my cocaine and I would like more cocaine, please. I, I want to see her do that all the time. Yeah, I think how I interpreted that scene is that, was, that would highlight... The contradiction between the Betty in the dreamland sure, yeah. and Betty in real life, which is her career is in decay and she can't find any, you know, sustainable jobs. And um, so that was sort of to highlight um, the dichotomy between both worlds. She sure. was so amazing and strong in the dream. And in the dream, she sort of takes takes the other character. Um, gosh, I have a what's the, the name of the other character? So there's Betty and there, Diane. She mm-hmm. takes Diane under her wing. And uh, whereas in in the reality narrative it's completely reversed yeah, yeah. Um, so I always saw that at, but it's true it's a very compelling and strong scene yeah mm-hmm. and it's also a larger indication too when you go back and unpack the dream concept that even though she has created this better version of her career for herself she's still completely at the whim of everybody else um, Betty doesn't she impresses people but they still have the power to cast her or not cast her they call her in they give her the opportunity uh and then there are other strings being pulled too with whatever's happening to justin through character which is again something that i imagine would have unfolded over two or three seasons uh and not got where it goes because in the end it doesn't go anywhere because it's not her it's not important that i guess the push-pull of i'm always aware of construction and the push-pull of knowing that this stuff wasn't originally supposed to go that way should frustrate me more, but in Mulholland Drive, somehow it works. As opposed to, um, what was it? There was a movie three or four years ago, a film called The Ape, that played Tiff and never surfaced anywhere else as far as I know. I want to say it was Scandinavian, Norwegian maybe, or, or um, maybe Norwegian. And it's about a man who wakes up covered in blood and has to go find out what happened to him. And the idea of the, like, the production of the film was that the actors wouldn't know what scene they were about to play before they played it. They shot it in sequence, and only the filmmaker knew what was going to happen next. And what you get, and I didn't know it at the time, I found out afterwards and thought, oh, that explains it. What you get is confusion, because the actors are trying on some level to stitch it all together. And Mulholland Drive doesn't do that because it was pitched as a pilot, so everyone has the confidence that this will go somewhere. And then when it turns out to not go to that place and, and becomes something else entirely, that confidence reads as something alien to us on second and third viewing. I mean, you can just watch Justin Theroux and not fully grasp anything about his character because he plays it with such hesitancy, which is clearly the way he's been informed. Like, he's not just working with nothing. But the actors in The Ape were just flailing in, this, in a very similar way, but because Theroux is playing it in the context of this is going to go somewhere and I just have to wait and find out what it is, it reads for his character and it works and it also doesn't feel quite right in retrospect. I think I've just talked myself in a huge circle here but but that's what's so fascinating about the films that uh, and about Lynch's approach to, to storytelling I think he simply tells people that you'll figure it out when I figure it out and it'll all be okay and they respond to him 
and less less successfully in um, Inland Empire just because that oh. movie was you know it's just it's a series of attempts it's a bunch of sketches that he throws together and, and knitted into a coherent whole um, over months and years but with Mulholland Drive the thing that it, it you just get the sense that the filmmaker is turning over an idea over and over in his hands trying to figure out which way he wants to present it and that works for the idea that we're watching someone's dream because it doesn't need to be coherent it just needs to feel real from moment to moment which this strangely does mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well i can what, what i love about what you just said is is uh making a documentary film feels very much like that you essentially you go out and you're shooting an idea that you've constructed in your mind mm-hmm. a hypothesis of where this is going to go where this is going to lead but the best films are going to turn that on its head you know that, because you go out and you're confronted with real life and you can't really control your characters unless it's sort of you know you're, you're doing a project that's has fiction and documentary mixed together and you have sure. a lot of control over the narrative but the best ones are really going to kind of explode and you're going to you know if you're able to adapt and follow this new narrative follow this where the character is going to lead you and make so much of a better film so um i love sort of that almost documentary quality of david lynch being confronted with what the material that he had okay now do how do i save this film yeah and 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 bring it to the next level um it'd be really interesting also to analyze okay what was really in the pilot and what he shot because he did end up shooting a lot of material mm-hmm. to fill in those holes yep um, were you ever? Did you, did you ever investigate and and try to pin down what was what? What was actual footage? And what was reshoots? I never did. There is apparently um, an exhaustive guide. The pilot leaked at some point because in that back at the time, um, you know, VHS tapes of pilots were being sent to television critics constantly, and I, I'm sure there are tapes out there to this day, and it's probably floating around online. But after a certain point, I didn't want to know, right? I, I have my own suspicions, but. On some level, I want to believe that it just arrived, that the whole thing existed as, you know, as a, as a, a found object that he stumbled across when he was trying to figure out what to do with it. Oh, well, I'll just, I'll come up with this reversal. And then everything else just filled itself in. I mean, I'm sure there's stuff in the first hour and a half that was added or expanded upon, but... You know, then there's the other stuff. There's Robert Forster's character, the detective, who's, who shows up for one scene, is never seen again. And... I just like the idea that Betty dreamed him, that all of these other unrelated characters are just floating around in her dream and have, and and maybe they represent something. Probably they don't because they're extraneous, but it's fascinating. And the Winky scene too. I mean, she's not in it. There's there's no connection to her own life. So she's not in it. But remember the scene where they go and have lunch at the diner. Yeah, yeah. And there's an actress who is blonde. It, it, she, it, it, you know, it's not Naomi Watts, but she looks exactly like her, you know, short hair, blonde hair. And she has a tag name saying Betty. Mm-hmm. So you think, okay, somehow this space is linked to Betty's character. Right. And there's a dialogue between those two elements. David Lynch is not going to tell you what and how, but it's kind of up to you to dream it yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, the other suggestion that I've heard, which I can't fully discount, is that she's the monster. Is that her rage is the thing that is coiled in the back of the scene, which is why she's not there. And why the scene is so uncomfortable is that her anger has reached out beyond her in this dreamscape and is ruining everything for everyone. And that's the thing that works the best about Mulholland Drive is that, as you said, like what Lynch does with tone is this sense that the world isn't right. And it's a it was something in the air, too, because Donnie Darko was released the same year and it has the same sense of 
an, an, an inexplicable wrongness in its world, which turns out to have an explanation, but it's just, it feels like, you know, after, and this is, this is me trying to put a political spin on the context of the time, but, you know, this is a year after um, George Bush and Al Gore and the decision, obviously the films were in production, Mahal and Drag would have been shot before the election, I think, but the world had, you know, the Clinton years were ending, you could feel that things were different or about to be different, and there's so much cinema from that point that feels like people trying to cope with it and not understanding the new, you know, the Y2K paranoia and all the sense, just the feeling that the world is about to be different and when nobody had any idea why. And maybe also it's because of the 9-11 connection for me that I've made this, that I've built this theory over the years. But it feels like the movie knows, the movie version, and not necessarily the TV series, but the movie version of Mulholland Drive is about trying to understand why the world didn't go the way you wanted it to. And I mean, obviously, literally, that if you if you buy the dream theory that you're watching someone thrash out her anger at failure. But even without the dream sequence, I think there's still that sense that we've ended up somewhere we shouldn't be, and we're all paying for it on some level. No one has any real power. No one can change their fate. Uh, fictional characters within the world of the dream go out and die, or or are abandoned into the world. Um, I love the idea that maybe Diane didn't exist before she was thrown out of that car. That she just arrives there. She can't remember anything. She might as well be a new person. And if that's the way we're supposed to interpret it, then does that mean she is the manifestation of Betty's desire, which she can't speak to because in Deep River, Ontario, you couldn't be out or even, I mean, we, we have no idea if she was out or even if she was acting on her sexuality. She's just, they're it's starting to rain. They're both just there for each other as though they'd been willed into existence, which, as it turns out, they have. Mm-hmm. See, I spend a lot of time thinking about these things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize Donnie Darko, Donnie Darko was another film that I was thinking of suggesting because oh, yeah. it's another film that I've thought a lot about and it has, you know, the component of mental illness. Is he mentally ill mm-hmm. or does he have access to this other realm that the other characters, you know, don't don't really is it, is it a gift yeah or is it a curse um i didn't realize i didn't remember they came out the same year yeah well they would have um donnie darko got postponed after september 11th but mulholland drive opened in i want to say october and donnie darko was on video by the spring of 2002 i think i think that's right but they are very much i think dancing with each other in a really weird unconscious way and in you know in much the same way that 1999 was this amazing renaissance year for american cinema and 2000 and 2001 sort of slingshot back to more conventional work that makes mahon drive and donnie darko stand out because they are so different and they use mainstream elements you know one is a detective story and one is a, a story about high school but they're not they're they're subversive acts upon those genres and um yeah not to get too heavily into Donnie Darker because it's weird and impenetrable in a completely different way, but, but Mulholland Drive is the one that is... It dares to do the thing that Donnie Darko doesn't do, which is just be so completely consumed by sexuality, by desire. Donnie Darko has a... It's a high school, it's dating, everybody's weird and hormonal, but Mulholland Drive is about my favorite thing in the world, which is two people blindsided by a connection. 
Um, and watching those actors play that and knowing now on second and third and fourth viewing that it's going somewhere that the television series never would have gone because in 2001 that was not going to happen yeah those very intense you know love scenes yeah. would that have aired on tv oh god no no yeah. no i'm sure those are reshoots yeah uh, even before the the fugue state yeah it's that relationship they were probably very close friends and they were probably going to explore the friendship over a season or two but i mean you know if you look at the way twin peaks dealt with sexuality they're they're only it's only seven or eight years later there's no way that it would have ever gone where the film goes but that's where Lynch's cinematic scope really kicks in, right? Because he's able to explore it. And I, eh, there's an element that like, I'm coming really close to an element of dirty old man talk about how it's a genuinely powerful scene because of its explicitness, but it's not the nudity. It's the, the emotion. It's the it's the feeling, right? Like they are, they are naked to each other before they ever take their clothes off, and that's really powerful. And again, nothing you could have ever done on television. Like that relationship couldn't have happened, and maybe now on cable, but certainly not in two thousand one on CBS or ABC. But it changed the film too, because then all of a sudden it was this sexy movie, and coming out of TIFF, everyone was sort of tittering about it, and and as always, the questions to the actors where, you know, oh, what was it like to do the love scene? It's like, well, but can we talk about the acting? Because it's incredibly powerful, that moment where um, Betty says, have you done this before? And, and Rita says, I don't know. It's, a, it's incredible. Like, it's amazingly powerful and vulnerable. And, you know, I was uncomfortable during the love scene for the characters because this movie that has not been about emotion really up until that point is suddenly just suffused in it. And there you can realize, oh, he's setting up the ending, which is that now we can understand how empty she feels without this in her life. But it's, I, I think it, it might be his biggest risk as a filmmaker to, to shoot that because nothing else he'd ever done. Blue Velvet's treatment of sex was very weird. And you get the sense from a lot of his earlier movies that sex is very icky. Uh, to him, like um, Eraserhead produces mutant babies, and the Elephant Man isn't allowed to explore that avenue in the film. Um, the film, not the character. It's just it can't go there. Uh, Blue Velvet, sex is the thing that destroys everything and unseats you and makes you ugly and and you know, to the point where you're lit badly. <laughs> it's just it's something that. I don't know. Filmmakers don't usually deal with it that way. It, it's um, bodies are eroticized. Lighting is 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 flattering and beautiful, and people shoot through you know sheer shears and shimmers and things. And Lynch has always viewed sex as a as a and wild at heart. It's the thing that unseats everybody, destabilizes them. Lost Highway. There's that whole "you will never have me" thing, and here it is about connection and passion is rewarded and that like that's the pivot i wasn't expecting from him a film that that actually treats uh emotional connection and love as something worth chasing as opposed to the corrupting factor that unseats all of america which has previously been like twin pigs too sex is a destroyer so here we are and it's really potent you've had this moment of, of total terror at the winkies and now this where two women are uh, are allowed to be together by the film and it's and then it's all ripped away from us it's all this 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 height of passion leads to 
the cratering of everything in Club Silencio. And do you think it could be actually that these two characters are one? Had you ever? Well, that's the theory, right? It's like yeah. the, the two sides of her, um, of her ambition and her emotional identity and, and everything. I don't know though, because in the end, it turns out that they're not. I mean, if we take the last act as reality, there is a love relationship that's been broken up. So we're seeing the idealized version, but we're also seeing how unstable it is in retrospect because the second it's challenged her psyche shatters and we're we're out we're, we're ousted into the real world she it's almost as though her memory of how good they were as a couple together physically and emotionally is enough to destroy her like that's what happens i guess i, I assume because again it's all up for um, it's up for interpretation but yeah i mean how do you how do you um interpret the ending or, or the relationships no I mean yeah I totally chime into what uh, you were saying but as you were talking I was, I, I was wondering what if these two characters are actually one mm. you know um, but I had seen it yeah that you sort of you know you have a reality and, and the scene and the dream um, and in the dream everything's reversed from reality um, but I was curious to, to know what you thought about uh, the final scene in the theater well no the Silencio in Club Silencio yeah, yeah. What it, I saw that as sort of coming to the realization um, that this is a dream, that what you're seeing is not real, and it's sort of the horror, the horror of that. Um, this is a form of a lie. You know, we all lie to ourselves, uh, and then you know, in the dream world, we try to escape that, or even in reality, we try to escape that. But when you're confronted with the, the truth, it's sort of a horrific moment. Um, and in Silencio, there's all that tension between magic and 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 horror, and and it's a very unsettling scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It it's well, it's what you were saying about his use of sound. It's the design of it is, we're obviously we're we're intended to call attention, or it we're intended to have our attention drawn to the concept of silence, no hay banda, and the and the fact that we're stranded alone in this space with people. But the movie breathes in a weird in a weird menacing way throughout and then it suddenly stops and we're destabilized again we're, we're somewhere else we're somewhere new and betty is freaking out in a way that nothing could prepare us for she's been so composed and so um contained Except when she's acting, when she brings it all out, and then we suddenly understand that's so essential to her character. But when when she starts to lose her composure, it's terrifying in a way that doesn't make any sense, except that it does. Like the emotional takes over, and we stop thinking about plot or what this means. And then it turns out that nothing else matters because we're watching the, the dissolution of that identity completely. And it is just so unnerving. Um, I remember just thinking, sitting there thinking, is it over? Is this it? And then realizing that there's still half an hour of movie left and what the hell is happening? But that's... Like, again, if he was reaching back to Lost Highway and being comfortable with that kind of bait-and-switch narrative and, and pulling the rug out from us with purpose, it works perfectly for this material because we are in a place that... And I think, I assume also that this is a, a reshoot, that the Club Silencio stuff would have been added because... You couldn't put that in a pilot. It just—it's too big a sequence to, to start something, right? It would—it would either be the ending of the first episode, or it would be 
something that happens seasons down the road. It's such an ambitious scene. Now that we're talking about it, you know, I'm thinking about the theater and the red curtain, and it reminds me of sort of that, you know, um, time capsule or no man's land scene in Twin Peaks where mm. they always go back to, you know, the, that texture of the red curtain. The red room, the yeah. Thea- the theater is a little bit kind of like this vessel um, that's outside of the story, but that reveals so many important elements. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost as though it exists apart from either storyline, either reality, yeah. and is just there for us to cross into it, which I guess is also something that he's done before and, and played with. Um, but if it was him just trying to figure out how to finish a film and how to make sense of a project, again, there's that argument that the unconscious decisions are the best ones because it takes us somewhere we haven't been and strands us there for five or six minutes of just incredibly uncomfortable cinema and then it bursts out for something into something else completely different and um and we're left to make sense of it which which is how he works right i mean i think so much of his process is simply showing people things and letting us figure out what they mean but Mulholland drive i don't know what it was i think it's the emotional intensity that just sort of peaks and explodes leaves people flailing to figure out what they'd seen in a way that other movies hadn't up to that point. And I'm trying to remember who it was. Somebody said it fairly recently that if you are intent on understanding a movie from the inside out, if you need to know what an ambiguous movie means, then you're failing. Then you're not allowing the movie to just do what it wants to do. But the nature of Mulholland Drive, there's a blue box and there are mysteries and there are puzzles there are things that were supposed to be solved over episodes, over seasons of television, uh, much like Who Killed Laura Palmer, uh, which he said he never really cared about the answer. It was, what a, it was what the question revealed in people. And in Mulholland Drive, he has to wrap all that stuff up or at least find meaning for them really quickly in, in terms of screen time. And so you just feel like you're being whiplashed into an explanation, but it's so stylized that it can't satisfy people who need concrete answers. I can only imagine how the television show would have frustrated people just because it's so clearly not interested in real-world explanations for half the things that happen. And then you end up in someone else's head entirely. It doesn't really matter because it's all a hallucination. If you want to write it off, yes, it's a perfect explanation. It was all a hallucination. But where I usually respond very badly to the idea that something was all a dream because it just speaks to laziness in a filmmaker, this one doesn't do that to me this one feels more um organic i guess i was gonna say uh constructed but i think it just feels like it grew out of the first version of the story and we kind of just got trapped inside of it as viewers you brought up the notion of the 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 blue box Mm -hmm. what what uh, how did you? Uh, what did you associate with that? What What did the blue box mean for you and your interpretation? I don't think I have a, an association. I think it is a prop. I think I, I just see it as you know. I, I've always liked the um, the Pulp Fiction thing, the, the the explanation for what's inside the briefcase. It's what Tarantino said: two lights and a battery. It's whatever you need it to be. And I think, for my interpretation, the idea that it doesn't contain anything makes more sense because Betty is hopeless because this is all an attempt to not be hopeless. And if there's nothing in there, that's an accurate representation of how she feels, right? Like if it's about a woman who is finally breaking down to her last psychic strands and this is the end, 
Isn't that what it would feel like? Isn't it about emptiness and having nothing? So, I don't know. I, I don't think there is anything in there. I, I think, I mean, I obviously she sees things, but I think that's all just part of her a desperate attempt to stitch her life back into something that would have meaning and fulfillment. And I don't want to necessarily argue that suicidal depression is an unfixable state because this is a movie and it's an artistic interpretation of that state. And maybe if she'd held out, something else would have happened. But we're supposed to feel her despair, and we do. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't think there's anything. I think that's like we're seeing someone run out of stuff and the spark's going. And what about the character of the, the, the parent, the grandparents? You know, like two old um, characters who kind of take her under their wing in the beginning when she's coming out of the airport, um, mm-hmm. but sort of come back to haunt her yeah, towards they, the end. Yeah, they turn on her. Yeah. Right? Um, I'm assuming that, again, she's rejecting them, but we're seeing everything from her perspective. So I don't know if it's a legitimate rejection or not, but she can't be with them. And that's that's the thing that comes through, that she doesn't want them around and they've become repellent and, and disturbing and horrifying. Yeah, Betty's just pushing everything away and, and or Betty Diane, whatever you want to call her, is just she's in a place where no one can help her and she won't allow herself the possibility of help and it all just has to end. And yeah, it's a really compelling state of mind in that film. When you're in it, it with her... You know, he's he's really good at transferring emotional states to cinema, just the way that other directors after Twin Peaks came out tried to duplicate the sense of disconnect and just the way that he can linger on someone crying and make it the most unsettling thing in the world. Laura Dern breaking down in Blue Velvet or, or um, Cheryl Lee in, in Fire Walk With Me. It's excruciating. You can't, you don't want to look at the screen because of the intensity that's coming off of it. And it somehow eludes everybody else, but Lynch can do it without even trying. And whether that's because he gets actors who trust him and give it all the way and hold back for other filmmakers, or because he's just figured out the alchemy of where to put the camera and how to hang a light, no one else can do that. And and Mulholland Drive is just that for 30 minutes at the end. Just this unbelievable mounting intensity that will not stop until the gun fires. I mean, I feel like even now I'm trying to protect the spoiler. And like, There's no way people don't know how this movie ends. Yeah. But it's like you're there with her. You feel her despair and, and by the end of it, it's like, yeah, no, nothing is ever going to make her happy. You believe how she feels. Uh, you accept it. Nothing is ever going to make her happy again and this might as well just be over. And it's... It doesn't feel like a release when it happens, but it does feel like there was no other way, which I still find very disturbing because I generally find myself to be a pretty optimistic person. But yeah, it's just, you just end. It ends and you end and the movie come, the movie ends and you go back to your life and it's haunting. Yeah, it's very, very haunting. Do you think we'd have a, a contemporary version of, of, of such a, I, I'd call it visionary film. Um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of things that I'm seeing lately are so... I feel like we'd need another Mulholland Drive, something that really questions the form and and, and uh, um, explores cinema in, in such an unsettling way. Yeah. I wonder if it's possible. I mean, just because the, the circumstances that created it are so specific that it was... You know, it was an accident. He had to come up with a way to finish it. And it wasn't the original 
whatever the original ending was, this isn't it. And because it was a transition from television to film, because it was, you know, going from all ages broadcast to a hard R of language and violence and sex and whatever else you wanted to put in, I don't know that you could make this happen a second time without feeling contrived, without feeling calculated. There, there are lots of other movies that try to do something like this, but they're all direct-to-video mysteries and they're bad. Like they just they, they get the wrong things. They take the wrong things away from it. Um, I don't know. I think Soderbergh could probably come up with something similar. Unsane has moments that feel as destabilizing as Mulholland Drive, but they're only moments, and it's about a character with an unreliable uh, perspective. But that's not what the movie's about either. The movie's about... It's a thriller about some other stuff. It doesn't really have the same connections to identity and, and, the, and the sort of the deep anxieties. I guess the limey had a little bit of a, that Lynchian kind of creepiness or feeling. What Just in the flashback structure? Yeah, what I had read was actually um, he had to completely... Uh, he, he The film that he set out to shoot was completely transformed through the edit. The limey? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Certainly... Um, if you listen to the commentary track on the on the DVD, it's an argument between Soderbergh and the screenwriter Lem Dobbs over what the intended versions of the film were, and it's it's amazing. Um, but the Lamy predates Mulholland Drive, right? It was ninety nine. Yeah. So since then, I don't know that there is an equivalent. I mean, there's probably some. I want to say there's um, maybe Lucretia Martel has come close. The headless woman sort of feels like a successor to Mulholland Drive, especially if you take a certain perspective on, on what the opening sequence means. Um, and I'm not going to spoil that because I'm sure people haven't seen it and that would be mean. Uh, but I ultimately, I, I watched that in canon. I was kind of dissatisfied with it because it felt like it was leaning on so many other things. So I think now if you're going to make the equivalent of Mulholland Drive, it would have to be so different in its execution as to be unrecognizable. I don't, I don't know. Where would you even start? Would it be about culture? Would it be about Los Angeles? Would it be about um, the tropes of detective stories that he's playing with? Or would it have to be something so completely radically different that, yeah, it would be something else? I don't know. I, I am grateful that the series never happened, though. Because we got to get we got Twin Peaks after. If he had done this series, would he have done Twin Peaks after? I mean, who knows, right? Yeah. That's definitely up, up for debate. Um but I'm definitely very, very grateful for, for this film. Yeah, and certainly what he does in the new series of Twin Peaks is influenced heavily by Mulholland Drive. Like, the confidence that he got from pulling that off. Um, the idea that he can just put images together and make people associate one with the other. A lot of Twin Peaks seem to be very dependent on that free-floating imagery. You know, like that whole that Black and White 8th episode is just... I mean, it's basically an essay film that kind of connects to the things that we've been watching, but it really doesn't. If you separate it out, it's a terrifying short film, or 45-minute, 50-minute short film. And, yeah, that that spoke to me of Mulholland Drive more than anything else, the idea that, yeah, I'm confident enough in my materials and my method that I can do this, and it will work, right in the middle of a what's supposedly an otherwise conventional, although an otherwise conventional television series. I don't think Twin Peaks can ever be considered conventional at this point. So, um, yeah, this, you know, roundabout way you've already sort of answered it, but this does bring me to the, the capper, the closing question, which is, what, if anything, of Mulholland Drive have you borrowed or used or referenced or stolen, absorbed into your own creative DNA? 
Oh, that's a good question. Well, you said the influence came out after the fact. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of rethinking about uh, Mulholland Drive after having made my film, I thought it was so interesting, sort of this investigative um, narrative combined, uh, well, taking place in a dream setting. Um, you know, my film was investigating my father's life and putting the pieces together and mm-hmm. questioning his identity. And in Mulholland Drive, there's this whole question of identity. Uh, you know, um, Betty uh, doesn't know who she is, you know, and uh, is trying to, they're trying to find out who she is, uh, piecing that together. Um, but then because there was so many loose ends, like in Mulholland Drive, we can say there's a lot of narrative loose ends that don't really, that kind of get resolved, I think. Uh, but you have to be creative in your own interpretation uh, and your own own analysis. Um, and in, in, in my investigation with my father, there were so many questions to address and so many loose hands. And I couldn't address everything. There, were, there would be way too many characters, sure. you know, way too many storylines. Uh, so I just kind of had to accept that there was going to be some level of chaos within the story but that was okay because the reality was that my life was chaotic growing up with my father my life was chaotic growing up with my siblings um uh but then i really wanted to sort of you know um integrate that chaos in a way that would be cinematic and compelling uh what kind of storytelling devices could create sort of that dream-like feeling and it was through the archives essentially that we wove in archives to sort of bridge uh past and present Mm -hmm. um so i mean very very loosely those are elements that i feel uh uh could have uh influenced me and i mean also i've had critics say that you know the the music of manic uh, reminisces very much David Lynch's style. Um, for me, it was more in the sound design, but I can definitely feel like, yeah, in the music, there's sort of this unsettling kind of mystery that uh, is woven and unravels throughout the whole film. Um, yeah. The idea of exploring your own family history is tantamount to archaeology. Um, there's a film this year, 306 Hollywood, that excavates... Uh, a grandmother's home by through her belongings, which Mike hated. Uh, I just found it so affected. But um, the idea of digging into your own past, into your own family's past, eventually is going to reveal things about yourself. You're basically telling your own origin story in a way, um, in a way that Mulholland Drive doesn't because its revelations are still closed off. We don't really get to see how things happened. We just see the 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 aftermath we see the carnage and the detritus so did you find anything in the course of manic that truly surprised you is there anything about yourself that you learned making your film definitely but to go back to mahalan drive i think there are little pockets where you get a bit of backstory flashes yes yeah flashes right i mean there's um the scene the party scene uh right where she goes up to the mountain and then you kind of see most of the characters the cowboys there you know justin uh the rocks is there uh and then, um, so you kind of get a sense that you're understanding the past. And then there's that scene on the set, right, where um, the two characters are kissing and she's watching that and it's kind of a horrific moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but things that I've learned, I mean, it's interesting too, because when you look at the ending of Mulholland Drive and it's so tragic, you know, ending in, in death and suicide. I mean, there are moments where I felt like the only way to get away from my own story was death. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, and... Or a form of complete detachment, you know, it was either I was going to set out and on this journey and, and face head on these questions that were haunting our family, 
and do this film because that would be, you know, a device for me to confront that creatively. Um, or I was going to just completely uh, burn, burn the, bridge, the bridge between my family and I. And uh, I decided I was going to attempt to make the film. And I'm glad I did that. Um, and yeah, I learned, I learned so much about my, my, my father, about, you know, our own family. Uh, I discovered I had siblings. I set out to meet those siblings. Um, but essentially I learned so much about myself and it was like that film, like completely destroyed me, but rebuilt me. There was definitely like a rebirth process for myself in that film and for my family, because the dialogue was completely broken between us. And it was when we sat down and watched a cut of the film that in the days that followed watching that cut and watching ourselves from from outside and the story of the family putting being put out in a narrative arc, mm-hmm. we started having discussions that we had never had before and connecting in a way we had never connected before. Um, so, so yeah, and I, essentially for me it was uh, being able to sort of... Uh, separate my father's life and the impacts of his decisions and and mine there was a point where i felt like you know the question like my father was you know if my father was a monster does that make me a monster um am i responsible for the damage that my father had perpetrated in so many people's lives and when i was going out and interviewing people who knew my father I felt like I needed to apologize but the people were so loving and so grateful that they got a chance to tell their own story mm-hmm. I realized that that was not my burden, you know, and I could really accept that my father lived his life and now I, I could learn from his life and make sure I'd never fall into his steps, but I could have my own life now and be my own person. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a strange thing. That's this idea of succession. that We bear the faults of our parents. I mean, they, they raise us or they don't, but we're, there's always that place where you have to become your own person. And I, it certainly felt like your film is you reckoning with that and and wrestling with it even to the point where you come out the other side yeah as you say just destroyed and recreated so good i mean do you feel better for having done it have you come through the other side absolutely i mean i used to wake up and every day i'd have questions about my father i'd think about him just looking in the mirror i'd see my father because i look so much more like my father than i look like my mom um but it was so funny after the film came out and sharing it with an audience I don't think about my father anymore. I really don't. Unless I have to talk about the film. Mm-hmm. But I think about him in another way. I think about him sort of as a character who played kind of a bizarre role in the theater of our lives, you know? But like, he doesn't have that... Um, um, Presence, maybe? Well, in French we'd say en prise. Like, he doesn't have that hold okay. on me anymore. And... I don't feel that burden anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like by making the movie, you've you've quantified him into a way that you can set aside, right? Like he's in the DVD case of the film on the shelf. Yeah. He's he's been remanded somehow into that custody. So you, in a way, you have Diane him. (laughs) You made him a figure within a larger story that you controlled. Yeah, absolutely. And I think being in the editing room and trying to you know organize the the chaotic narrative that was truly therapeutic Mm -hmm. and i felt like for once i was no longer a victim to my story but you know i was a storyteller i was uh in control yeah of that and obviously you know there's a lot of ethical responsibilities that comes with that control you have to make sure that it's respectful for everybody involved which i consulted a lot of people in the process 
but I could really sort of reclaim that power. Yeah, and that was that was very that was um, very powerful. Yeah, cinema therapy. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know that could be dangerous. You know, some people could uh, you know use the camera for therapy, and 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 maybe it could end up being a film that's not compelling for an audience. Um, yeah, I've seen a few of those. <laughs> yeah, so it's a very it's tricky. It's a there's a very fine line. You know. Um, that's why also I didn't want to just make this film completely on my own, close off from the world. I decided to work with a team of people who could sort of help me and advise me. So that was a, that was a good move, I think. Yeah, I'm sure. My thanks to Kalina Bertin, whose powerful personal documentary Manic is available for rental and purchase right now at vimeo.com slash on demand slash Manic. It's a really strong debut and you should check it out. Thanks also to Sophie Ramvari. She knows what she did. You can find Kalina on Twitter at Kalina Bertan, all one word, and you can find Mulholland Drive on Blu-ray and DVD in a fine special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also available in the U.S. for rental on iTunes and purchase on Amazon, but you should get the Criterion edition. Trust me on this. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're great. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening. And come down to see Jaws with me and Paul Sun Young Lee Thursday, August 15th at 6.45 p.m. at the Review Cinema in Toronto. Ticket link is at reviewcinema.ca. That's R-E-V-U-E cinema.ca. Or you can just follow Semcast on Twitter, where I'm going to be tweeting about it constantly. It'll be great. It's Jaws. It's fantastic. See you there. I'm afraid you just too darn